Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come again to this uh, familiar passage, uh, knowing that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, we pray, Lord, that you would apply these glorious truths to our hearts, that you would move our hearts afresh, that you would um, make us to rejoice and to know ever more deeply and convict us ever more uh, ever more deeply of the meaning and the great uh, value of these truths, the eternal nature of these truths through Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you'll please open your Bibles to our sermon text, uh, we'll be reading Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 62, through the end of Matthew uh, 28. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. Matthew 27, beginning at verse 62. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people 
His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I want to open this morning with an extended quote from one of the radio addresses of Dr. J. Gresham Machen. He said, 1900 years ago, there lived in an obscure corner of the Roman Empire, one who would have seemed to be, to a superficial observer, to be a remarkable man. He engaged in a career of religious teaching accompanied by a ministry of healing. At first, he had the favor of the crowd, but Since he would not be the kind of leader the people demanded, he soon fell victim to the jealousy of the rulers of his people and to the cowardice of the Roman governor. He died the death of criminals of that day on the cross. At his death, his followers were discouraged. They had evidently been far inferior to him in discernment and in courage, and now what little courage they may have had was gone. His death meant the destruction of all their hopes. Never, one might have said, was a movement more completely dead than the movement which had begun, had been begun by Jesus of Nazareth. Let me pause the quote there. That's where our text picks up this morning. With Jesus dead and buried in the grave. His disciples have abandoned him and scattered in fear. Perhaps they might be the next to be killed. And so I think Machen is right when he says, never was a movement more completely dead than that movement which had been begun by Jesus of Nazareth at this moment. At least that's how it appears. But then Machen continues, then, however, the surprising thing happened. It is a fact of history which no real historian denies that those same weak, discouraged men The followers of Jesus began within a very short time after the shameful death of their leader in Jerusalem, the scene of their cowardly flight, the most remarkable movement that the world has ever known, the movement commonly called the Christian church. At first, the movement was obscure, but it spread like wildfire. In a few decades, at the most, it was firmly planted in the chief cities of the civilized world and in Rome itself. After a lapse of less than three centuries, it conquered the Roman Empire. Incalculable has been its influence in the whole history of the world. What caused that remarkable change in those followers of Jesus? What caused those weak and cowardly men to suddenly become the spiritual conquerors of the world? It is now admitted by historians, both Christian and non-Christian, that those followers of Jesus became the founders of what is commonly known as the Christian church because they became honestly convinced 
that Jesus was risen from the dead. End quote. That was the difference. They were convinced that Jesus was risen from the dead. And how did they become convinced of such a thing? The scripture gives us the simple and definitive answer. It was only because he, in fact, was risen from the dead. And they were eyewitnesses of this fact. The resurrected Christ appeared to them. He reversed their sorrow. He gave them boldness and sent them out to preach the good news. And that's why we have gathered for worship this morning, the morning of Resurrection Sunday, because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He rose on the first day of the week, and that's why we now worship on the first day of the week, to remember, to celebrate, to praise God the Father for raising God the Son from the dead through the power of the Holy Spirit. As we saw last week, Jesus died on the cross to bear God's wrath for our sins. But three days later, God the Father raised him from the dead to show the world that his sacrifice was accepted. His resurrection is the climactic miracle which proclaims for all the world to see that Jesus Christ is exactly who he said he was, that he accomplished exactly what he said he had come to do. And so this morning we will look at Matthew's account of the resurrection seeing the responses of Christ's followers, as well as the response of those who opposed him. We will see how God works even through the schemes of his enemies to make the glory of the risen Christ known to the world. And as we see in this account, Jesus' followers absolutely transformed by their encounters with the risen Lord so that they respond to him in worship, My question to you this morning will be, how will you respond to the risen Lord Jesus Christ? And so we begin this morning in chapter 27, verse 62, the day after Christ's death and his death on the cross and his burial. And we see that that occurred on the day of preparation for the Sabbath day, that is Friday to us. And Matthew is very tactical, and he says in verse 62 that the chief priests and the Pharisees now gather on the day after preparation day. That is to say, it is now the Sabbath day, the day that should be set aside to rest, to worship the Lord, to do no work except works of necessity and mercy. But instead of doing the work of God, they are doing the work of their father, the devil, the work of suppressing the truth, the work of opposing Christ and his kingdom. You think that after the cross, after getting their way and triumphantly putting their enemy, Jesus Christ, to death, they could simply rest as the victors. But they are still afraid. Perhaps they heard the words of the centurion. But he said after he saw Christ die, truly, this was the Son of God. Or perhaps they were unnerved by the earthquake and the temple, the curtain in the temple that was torn from top to bottom after Christ's death. Somehow they know they need to keep opposing Jesus Christ, even if it means breaking the laws that they teach and that they claim to uphold. And so they gather before Pilate and they say to him, sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. 
Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Thus his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Notice the irony here. While the disciples seem to have completely forgotten Jesus' many predictions that he will rise again, it is Christ's enemies that so keenly remember his words. The disciples have given up hope, but Christ's enemies are afraid. Now, the essence of their scheme is that they are trying to prevent the resurrection of Jesus. Not that they believe he will actually rise, but they believe his disciples will seek to fake it. That they will steal the body in the night and falsely proclaim that he is risen. And they don't want any such rumors to even start to spread. And so they will do their utmost to prevent it. Pilate offers them a guard unit, orders them to make the tomb secure And so the tomb is sealed, so that it cannot be tampered with. Now in God's providence, the sealing of the tomb, the posting of the guard, makes certain that the disciples could not have stolen the body. The only possibility is that something far greater happened. And that's exactly what we see come dawn of the next day. So we read in chapter 28, verse 1, Now after the Sabbath... Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. They did not have great expectations. They came to mourn over his body, to complete any preparations of the body that had been lacking in his burial, that had been rushed in such a hurry to finish before sundown on uh, on the day of preparation going into the Sabbath. When they arrive they get the surprise of a lifetime. Verse 2, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. There had been an earthquake when Jesus died, and now a second earthquake caused by the appearance of this angel. As he descends from heaven, these earthquakes are given by God to mark the significance of these events. Signs that a whole new age is breaking in. The angel rolls back the stone, and we see that it's not to let Jesus out of the tomb. He has already risen and departed. Or rather, the stone is rolled back to allow the two Marys to enter and to see that the tomb is already empty. We also see that all the preparations of the religious leaders can do nothing to stop the resurrection. In fact, it had already happened and the guards didn't even know it. And when this angel descends with such a radiant appearance, the seal and the stone is no hindrance at all. We also see this great reversal. The guards who were there to watch over a corpse become like dead men themselves. While the dead man they were keeping watch over has already been raised. He is alive. And so these Roman guards are incapacitated and they are replaced by a new guard, an angelic guard who sits on top of the stone And he no longer bars the way into the tomb, but rather he invites the women in to see that the tomb is empty. 
The angel said to the woman, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Notice how he comforts the women saying, do not be afraid. He recognizes they are here to see and to seek the Lord. He gives no such comfort to these guards. He continues, he is not here. He has risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. Here the angel points out that Jesus had predicted his resurrection. And if you go back and look just in the Gospel of Matthew, he had in fact done so five times. Three times he had predicted his coming suffering and death, followed by the clear and explicit teaching that he would be raised specifically on the third day. Two other times he simply refers to his coming resurrection and passing, using that as a reference for a future time, as if this is something his disciples should know and understand. Just as an aside, because I know I myself have been confused in the past about the third day, how are these days counted? And here it helps to understand two things. First, that by Jewish reckoning, the days begin at sunset, just as the Sabbath began at sunset. That's why they needed to bury him before sunset. And second, the days are counted inclusively, so including the day he died and was buried. And so Jesus died and was buried on the day of preparation, that is Friday, and that is the first day. Then there is the Sabbath, Saturday. He is in the grave that full day. That is the second day. Then Saturday at sundown begins day three, the first day of the week. He is in the grave all night. And then he is raised sometime before dawn on the third day, just as he said. So the angel is saying, Jesus has been raised on the third day, just as he said. This should not be a surprise to you. He is simply keeping His word. Have you ever known Jesus? Not to keep his word. Not to fulfill his promises. And this is a wonderful reminder to us. In all things, no matter how small, no matter how great the Lord keeps his word, he fulfills all his promises. They are all yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have this as a proof If he can keep his word in this, in his resurrection and being raised from the dead, surely he can keep his word in everything else he has promised to you. Verse 7, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Here we see that the angel gives the women a mission to carry this message of Christ's resurrection to his disciples. They are to meet him in Galilee, where he will give them the great commission. And consider here the significance that Matthew, along with all four Gospels, highlights that the first witnesses of the resurrection are these women. The only possible reason that this is reported in this way is that this is the way it must have happened. Because if you are making up a story in those days in order to try to persuade the most people, this is not the way you would have made it up. Women were not considered reliable witnesses in those days, so much so that they were forbidden to testify in a Jewish court. And yet, in God's providence, they were chosen to be the first witnesses. And in honestly telling the story, the gospel writers could not avoid this fact. 
And we don't have the same biases against the testimony of women today. And we can celebrate the fact that God chose them to be the first witnesses of the empty tomb of the resurrected Christ. And we also recognize how this strengthens our confidence that this is a genuine account. If this were invented, if this were made up, it would never have been written in this way. The only explanation is that we have four distinct accounts, and in all four, the first witnesses are the women. And this is because this is the way it must have happened. Next, we see the response of the women to the angel in verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. We see first here their obedience. He told them to go quickly and they do so even running. But most of all, we notice their twin emotions, the emotions of their heart. They go with fear and great joy. Perhaps the fear is in response to the awesome appearance of the angel. But I believe more so their fear is in response to the immense magnitude of what has just occurred. It's not that this is the fear of dread or the fear of something terrible that's about to happen to them. Rather, it's the reverent fear of sheer awe and wonder. They are trembling with wonder, and that's why this can be paired with great joy. They expected to visit a tomb to see a dead body. Instead, they receive the good news that Jesus has risen, just as he said. And so their hearts overflow with awe at the power of God and the joy that their Lord, their teacher, and their friend has gone from death to life. And you can also imagine their minds must be spinning just absolutely spinning as they begin to process this. Everything happened on that happened on the cross must now be seen in a different light. Now, of course, Jesus had prepared them for it. He had explained why he was going to the cross. But if they weren't expecting the resurrection, that means they didn't truly understand what he had said before, why he was going to the cross to suffer and die for the sins of his people. And so perhaps now this joy is not just that Jesus is risen, but now a fuller understanding of Jesus' mission and all that he had come to accomplish in both his death and resurrection. All the pieces are coming together. It's all starting to click. And can you imagine what joy must fill their hearts? Now as they set off in obedience They get the next great surprise, verse 9, and behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. The women go from getting the news of Jesus' resurrection from an angel, that's good enough, but now to meeting him face to face. He gives them a simple, everyday word of greeting. The equivalent of simply saying hello. But the two Marys are not content with responding in the same way. They're not just going to give a hello back. Their immediate response is to bow down before him to take hold of his feet and worship the risen Christ. Now ordinarily, a Jewish person would never bow down 
to worship a mere human being. That would be blasphemy. They know there is one God, and you must worship him and him alone. Clearly, these two women, they are convinced that Jesus is no mere human being. By his resurrection, he has proven that he is the divine Son of God incarnate. He is worthy of worship. This is confirmed when he does not refuse their worship. Also in there, touching him, grabbing hold of his feet, we see an acknowledgement, he is no ghost. He has been raised in a true physical body. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. He comforts their fears, simply repeats the instructions to summon his disciples to Galilee. And notice how he refers to his disciples here so tenderly. My brothers, the same disciples who had fled when he was arrested in the garden, including Peter, who denied him three times, who wept in shame when the rooster crowed and he realized what he had done. And those disciples hear that Jesus is risen. Their first thought may be to be ashamed that they had abandoned him, that they did not believe his words. But we see here that Jesus has already forgiven them. He wants to meet with them, to restore them, to commission them. So we've seen the responses of the women to this good news of Christ's resurrection. They respond with reverent fear, with awe, with joy, with worship. What is your response this morning to the good news? That he is risen. And next we see the continued schemes of Christ's enemies. In verse 11, we see that some of the guard go into the city to tell the chief priests what has taken place. Now only some of them went because others still had to remain and guard the tomb, even if the task now seems pointless. Even though they know the tomb is empty, they still had their orders to stand guard. So the religious leaders assemble. They come up with the best response they possibly can to give Money to the soldiers to tell people the disciples came by night and stole him away while we're sleeping. And if it comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. And when you hear their decision, you hear the story they're going to tell, you just have to laugh because of the irony. They will now be the ones spreading word about their complete failure to do the one thing that they had set out to do to secure the tomb, to prevent the body from being stolen. Also remember how they said their initial purpose was to prevent fraud, to prevent deception. Jesus was an imposter, defrauding the people. His disciples falsely proclaimed. And if his disciples would falsely proclaim that he rose, that would be an even worse fraud. They wanted to keep that from happening. And now they are the very ones cooking up a conspiracy in order to defraud both the people and the governor. As they spread these lies, they reveal themselves to be children of the devil, the father of lies. But their lie isn't even very good. It doesn't make any sense. First, it doesn't make sense that an entire guard of trained Roman soldiers would fall asleep on the job. This is the very thing they were trained never to do. 
And they knew the punishment in those days for sleeping on the job was death. The only reason these soldiers would be willing to go along with such a story is that they were in a bind. Either way, they know that they have failed. The body is gone. They're going to be punished for that. So at least if they go with this story, the Jewish leaders will pay them, will stick up for them with their superiors. Perhaps if they go this way, they will escape punishment. Second, even if they had fallen asleep, there's no way that they would have stayed asleep while multiple men broke the seal, rolled this large stone out of the way from the opening of the tomb. Third, if they were sleeping, how do they know what happened to the body? It doesn't make any sense. Fourth, if their story is true, how does it explain the complete transformation of the disciples? These men who had abandoned Jesus in his time of need had abandoned him in fear and shame. But then a few days later are completely emboldened. If it's all based on a lie, a conspiracy cooked up in the middle of the night, based on grave robbing, would all 11 remaining apostles be willing to give the rest of their lives to preach the resurrection of the dead? even to the point of shedding their own blood, even to the point of dying as martyrs. Would they do this for something they knew was a sham? It's simply not possible. So the story doesn't hold up if you take even a few moments to think about it. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, Psalm 2. The more you think about it, the more laughable this story is. So why make it up? Well, in part, this is their way. As enemies of Christ, they are seeking to undermine him, to preserve their own petty kingdom. But the other part is that God will use even this cover-up to make clear one key fact that nobody will dispute. The tomb is empty. And even in their fraudulent story, they admit it. If the Jewish authorities could simply have gone to the grave and pointed to a body, then the proclamation of the gospel, that he is risen, it would have fallen apart. The early church would never have gotten off the ground. But as soon exactly what they feared would come to pass, the early church would explode in growth. And to think all they needed to be able to say was, Jesus didn't. Rise from the dead. Here is his body. But they were unable to do so. Instead, they were left with this hardly coherent narrative. But also witness here the hardness of their unbelieving hearts. Not just the religious leaders in Jerusalem, but especially these soldiers. They saw the same angel as the women. They too heard his words about the resurrected Jesus. But rather than responding in awe, in joy, in worship, than going to tell others the good news, all they responded with was paralyzing fear, followed by their decision to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, to exchange the truth about God for a lie, Romans 1.25. How do you respond to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? This morning, which example will you follow? 
We then have one more response to the risen Lord to see this morning as the disciples follow Jesus' summons to meet him in Galilee. Jesus had begun his ministry in Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the nations. And so it's fitting that this is the location from which to launch his worldwide mission of his church by issuing the Great Commission. But this isn't called the Great Commission just because of the greatness of the mission that's given. It's great, the Great Commission, because the greatness of the Commissioner, Jesus Christ. And that's what we see in the disciples' immediate response upon seeing the risen Jesus. We read, when they saw him, they worshipped him. Just like the two Marys, they saw him and they fell down in worship. And again, Jesus received his worship, received their worship. Now here we see that some doubted, but Jesus immediately reassures them so that there can be no doubt of his divine power with these words. As he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He had been crucified as the king of the Jews. But here we see he is risen as the king of all, king of heaven and earth. And now with all authority, Jesus sends his disciples out to make disciples of all nations, preaching the good news of his crucifixion and his resurrection, urging all people everywhere to repent of their sins, to be reconciled to God. The divine power for this great work comes from Jesus' own presence as he promises, I will be with you always, literally all the days to the end of the age. Here we see that in his resurrected state, even as he is about to disperse his disciples to the four corners of the earth, he promises to be personally present with each and every one of them. And we've already seen he keeps his word. But how will this be possible? Only because he is about to ascend into heaven to rule at his father's side. And he will send out his Holy Spirit so that he might spiritually dwell in the heart of each and every one of his disciples. And that includes you and me and all who trust in him today as well. He is present with you to comfort you, present with you to empower you for his service. You know, the disciples will soon carry out this commission. As I said in the introduction, the church of Jesus Christ soon spread across the Greco-Roman world like wildfire, exploded in growth. And so the worship of Jesus' disciples here, these 11, this is just a prelude to what will become a movement of worship which soon encircled the whole earth. We are gathered here this morning Because we are part of this same movement, citizens of this same kingdom, worshiping the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. So let that be your response this morning as well, to bow down at his feet, to worship the risen Savior and King, and to trust that he will do all that he has said. He has promised that if you repent of your sins, that if you put your faith in him, He will forgive your sins. He will clothe you in his own righteousness. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 9. 
He has also said, I am the resurrection and the life. So that all who believe in him, he will raise on the final day in glorious resurrection bodies like his own. Guarantee of all these things, of all his promises, is that he has risen from the dead, just as he said. Resurrection is the seal and guarantee of his work on the cross. And since Christ has been raised, we know he will keep all his promises as well. This is good news, brothers and sisters. This is the reason to rejoice, the reason to bow down, the reason to worship our risen Savior. So let us trust in him and let us long for that day when he will return, just as he said. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise for your crucified and risen Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he died the death we should have died, and because he has risen, we can now walk in newness of life. Our hearts are filled with joy as we meditate on the glorious truth that he has conquered sin and death, and so we have nothing to fear. We thank you that he is now ascended, seated at your right hand, and as our great high priest, he is always interceding for us. Help us, Father, to live in hope, to live in gratitude, even as we long for that day of his return. Praying, come, Lord Jesus, come soon. It's in his name we pray. Amen.